0: Computer Center. This is Inside Politics with Radio NL News Director Shane Woodford.
1: Good morning. Thank you for tuning in. Beautiful day shaping up here in Kamloops, and what a busy morning on the news front. Uh, we got a lot to talk about. A pleasure to welcome to the program as always, Global BC's Keith Baldry and the Vancouver Sun's Vaughn Palmer. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning, Shane. Uh, before we get going, just some quick breaking news on my end. Interior Health has just issued an overdose alert. It's warned that's detected carfentanil within the health region. That's an opioid much more deadly than fentanyl. Nineteen carfentanil-related overdoses this month of the those, there has been, uh, see here, seven deaths occurring in the Interior Health Region. They're advising caution if you're using any kind of street drugs, which you probably shouldn't be. Just wanted to pass that on off the top, gentlemen. Um, Some other breaking news on the political side. Uh, Legal aid uh, news uh, just minutes ago. uh, It appears a threatened job action that was supposed to begin on Monday may have been averted. The Province Legal Services Society announcing a one-time grant of $7.9 million to support the development of a new framework for legal aid funding. Uh, Keith, is this mission accomplished for Dave Eby, who said recently he wanted to keep the conversation going, avert job action, and work towards a longer-term deal? And if so, does it address this simmering dispute that's been going on for quite some time now?
2: Well, the Association of Legal Aid lawyers just issued a news release saying there will be no job action. They, Their members, over, 624 of them, of their members overwhelmingly voted in favor of this uh, this uh, deal from the government and the legal uh, uh, aid services society so uh, but it is short term it's a one-time grant uh, I have a feeling we're going to be revisiting this issue in future fiscal years but uh, it does buy Evie a fair amount of time to uh, come to a more permanent uh, solution here but uh, and it's not unexpected that this happened I, I didn't really think they were going to get to the point of job action and Evie really didn't want to run that risk so it's, it's good news right now for those who need legal aid uh, but I think the um, the uh this doesn't expire but the in terms of the increased payments uh goes until October 31st of this year so it's not a completely uh, 100% solution, but it's uh, it's a, more than a stopgap one, but clearly more work needs to be done on that file. Legal, legal aid funding has been a challenge for well more than a decade. I mean, this has been going on yeah. for a long time, uh, but there's been a short-term solution reached here.
1: Uh, part of that release on top of the funding as well, Vaughn, is that it looks like both sides are committed to design uh, what they're calling a long-term legal aid negotiation framework, as Keith just referenced. I mean, uh, this has been going on for the better part of a decade, if not longer than that. Uh, is this some kind of a sign that this rocky relationship is entering more stable territory or no?
3: Oh, yeah, I think so. I mean, look, they're not going to go back on the terms of this agreement. And then it's not only $8 million uh, to support development of this new framework, but it's, I see uh, the legal aid lawyers are saying it's a 25% increase in payment to legal aid lawyers. So they're getting a 25% increase. I realize their position is they haven't had a raise in 25 years, so it's not like more than catch-up. But, no, I, I mean, I think this is put on a new fitting, footing, and I also think you've got the government acknowledging that... Um, You know, this is last minute uh, had they started dealing with this when they took office, uh, they probably would have that new framework in place. It's a it's a belated move in that sense, but yeah, I think at 8 million bucks and a 25% increase, uh, that's a pretty good starting point for a new relationship.
1: Yeah, breath of fresh air on that front, uh, but still a story that will continue to follow. Uh, one of the bigger developments this week was on the ride-sharing front, uh, the legislative committee that was responsible for that, an all-party committee tabling 11 recommendations. Uh, the crux of the story around this one is that uh, Minister of Transportation, Claire Trevena, took slightly less than an hour to come out and dismiss uh, the recommendation that uh, that uh, ride-sharing drivers should have Class 5 license as opposed to Class 4. Uh, this has raised all kinds of problems. Uh, we can assume that there was something going on behind the scenes that had turned the government cold on this thing, and Trevena's preaching it's about safety. Uh, Keith, what's going on here?
2: Well, you know, we've all talked about this show many times. I've had my suspicions whether the NDP really is, at the end of the day, fundamentally interested in bringing in an industry that uh, is basically modeled on an unregulated industry. I mean, Lyft and Uber uh it's it operating on what's basically the, the most ultimate free open market system you can imagine with a minimal of regulations and the ndp cannot accept that uh fundamentally and philosophically that's not what this party's all about it does like to have government involvement in things so uh insisting that drivers have a class 4 license which is uh involves more training uh, more tests, uh, and just basically, is another barrier to get get over. Ensure that uh, this would add a regulation to something that uh, doesn't occur in most other jurisdictions Lyft already has said we cannot operate uh, if you bring in a, a class 4 system or you know full stop Uber though is still leaving the door open that they because they do operate in some cities that do require a class 4 license or the equivalent of in other provinces uh, but they're not happy about that that either I mean the, the fix was in on this right from day one in terms of Trevena uh, dismissing that recommendation from the committee it was I mean she came out and actually read from a prepared text and then the argument that it's all about safety The counter argument is most... Parents send their kids off with field trips with class four drivers, you know, every week of the year. Uh, so, in terms of being uh, providing more safety, there's no guarantee that that's the case. But if it's class four, we'll see if Uber wants to to uh, to come in. I still have my doubts because Cater is still there, this other sort of hybrid system that is going to uh, partner with the taxi industry to have not ride hailing, but but sort of a more technologically friendly taxi industry. So, my bet is still Uber and Lyft will say no to BC.
1: Yeah. Well, that raises the, an interesting point because uh, Premier John Horgan very loudly proclaimed this week that ride-hailing will be coming as promised this fall. Claire Trevenna has repeated that line several times in the legislature this week as well. Um, but if we're in this delay thing and we've got all these procedural issues and the transportation board's got to do its thing, and uh, all signs are pointing to perhaps that's not going to happen. So, um, does it break down to the definition? Yeah. Does it break down to the definition of ride-sharing Vaughn? Are we hitting this? spring and they're going to say, hey, you know, Cater's here, yes. uh, promise kept.
3: You know, uh, Travanna, I mean, Travana reads from a prepared text on this issue uh, and is on a very short leash with the taxi industry. She doesn't say anything to offend them. Uh, so, you know, she gets asked in that press conference on uh, when this thing is announced the day the committee report comes out. And after she's trashed the one recommendation from the committee that the new Democrats on the committee voted against, um, she's asked, well, do you you consider cater to be real ride hearing, or is it what many people think, which is basically just a front for the taxi industry? And she ducked the question. She got asked three times, show us some evidence that there's a safety issue with the uh, regular standard licensing. She ducked that three times. In the House this week, Adam Olson of the Greens got up yesterday and said to Travana, look, there are four or five things you can do to deal with the safety issue that don't involve imposing commercial licensing on Uber and Lyft and, and ride hailing. She completely sidesteps it, right? She doesn't even address the question. So... I think I agree with Keith. The fix is in. The uh, new Democrats are in the pocket of the taxi industry. And when we get to the end of the year, don't be surprised if all we have is cater. And John Horgan stands up and claims that that's ride hailing which is basically, he's saying, a front for the taxi industry is ride-hailing.
1: One of the other things I thought was an interesting observation by uh, the always astute Jill Bennett, uh, Keith, this week, and she took it to Twitter, was uh, one of the recommendations mentioned, uh, we want to check on abuses such as surge pricing. And she pointed out, well, listen, the government's not going after airlines who suddenly spike prices. They're not going after bars who spike prices on special occasions like New Year's Eve. Why single out ride-hailing?
2: Yeah, no, that was a great uh, tweet by by Jill. Uh, again, it goes back to uh, the NDP, I think, being fundamentally and phil- philosophically opposed to allowing a unfettered, no re- minimal regulation industry to take foot in BC at the expense of an, an existing taxi industry, as Vaughn says, is in the pocket of the of the NDP and, the, frankly, the BC Liberals. They don't have clean hands on this either. The taxi industry has a disproportionate amount of political power in this province because it's very powerful. Uh, politically in key geographical areas of the province, notably Burnaby and Surrey and South Vancouver. And that, as the last election showed us, may very well determine uh, whichever party wins in those areas may likely form the next government come the next election. And that's why I think you see there's more evidence that uh, the NDP's lesson from the 2017 election is that it's very much a suburban party, and that's where the taxi industry is uh, is more powerful. And that's why it's more interested in, in regulating than worrying about surge pricing on airlines.
1: And to that point, though, there is growing frustration among the public uh, who come out of the bar early in the morning, who hit the airport, or wherever, and they struggle to find a taxi home. They don't get the service that they want, and they want to see some ride-sharing. They want to see an archaic industry shaken up and provided with some competition. So if yep. the taxi industry has a chokehold on these provincial parties and is essentially getting their way and we're preserving what really is an archaic and outdated system that's not serving its clientele. Vaughn, at what point does the public's anger break the dam and we see progress on this?
3: Uh, You're right. I mean, this is, look, uh, this is a government that spends a lot of its time pandering to uh, millennials for good reason. They're the coming generation of voters. And who gets more ticked off than millennials, right, on this issue? Uh, Another one, the New Democrats never miss a chance to proclaim their interest in gender equality. The one stat you won't hear them quote Is that in Alberta, this is from the committee report, in Alberta, where commercial licensing is required, 5% of the ride-hailing drivers are women. Commercial licensing is a barrier to entry to younger drivers, to recent immigrants, and to women. Uh, Normally, we know where the NDP goes on issues, especially of gender equality, young people, rights for immigrants. They are so enthralled to the taxi industry that if you try to ask Claire Trevena a question about that, she won't even address it. She won't even address the facts which are in a report from a legislature committee that say commercial licensing is inherently unfair to women.
1: And by the way, we asked the minister to come on the show today to answer some questions on that front, and uh, she apparently was, was busy today. Uh, we do have Adam Olson, who was on the ride-sharing committee coming up later on the show to dive back Olson's into this. show.
3: very, very good on this. And yeah. Key right, the Greens are the only party in the legislature that aren't enthralled by the taxi industry. Mm, yeah. And I think it's one of those things where we see the Green Party can be quite refreshing because they don't take all the stands that the New Democrats and the Liberals do on many issues.
2: And yeah. given Trevena's refusal to answer questions, Shane, I think your listeners were done a service for her not coming on.
1: <laughs> well, there's a silver lining, I suppose. Uh, guys, let's take a quick break here. On the other side, we'll get Keith and Vaughn's take on this land title spat that's big news here in Kamloops and dominated question period down the legislature yesterday.
0: Now, Radio NL, 610 a.m. and RadioNL.com. Accountable to you for Kamloops Computer Center. This is Inside Politics with Shane Woodford on Radio
1: NL. Good morning. Welcome back. We're talking to Keith Baldry and Vaughn Palmer. Uh, Guys, as it hit the legislature yesterday, you're getting a sense of a brewing controversy in our community here in Kamloops. Uh, We have a land titles office. There's about 10,000 square feet of records in this thing. They have decided they're moving those records to Victoria for digitization. Uh, That has caused a bit of a a problem here. The City Council is going to look at a motion next week about pressing pause in this thing. The local regional district has already passed the very same motion. Uh, The local MLAs are spitting mad about it, and, uh, and I thought an interesting point on this whole thing was raised in question period yesterday when a little haymaking on the political sides and back and forth between uh, Millibar Stone and Doug Donaldson had a change of tone when some other Liberal MLA stood up and said, have you consulted area First Nations about this? I mean, really, have you? And Doug Donaldson kind of changed the way he was answering questions, became a lot less political, st- stood up and basically repeated, well, I'll look into that and sat back down. Uh, Vaughn, your take on this thing?
3: Well, I only know what I heard in the legislature yesterday, which is not always a great basis for fact-gathering, but uh, I heard three things there, and you're right. First of all, it starts off with a question from the Liberals on why they're doing this and the, the impact of doing it, and the, and the government's initial reply from the minister is, well, you guys privatized this thing. Uh, if you didn't want it to control the private sector, you shouldn't have done that. And then the government said, look, these records are being moved to Victoria for safer storage. Uh, the copies will still be available uh, for any and all purposes and so forth. And you're right. Then it took an interesting turn because the liberals got up and read a letter from a local First Nations leader saying, um, you know, uh, we'd like these records in our community partly because the whole question of land title is fundamental to First Nations rights and traditional territory, and there's a nice line in there saying, if the government says that copies are okay, I suggest you let us keep the originals, and you take the copies down to Victoria. So, I don't think it really got sorted out. Uh, I think you're right that uh, the, the issue was still there. Uh, how it will be resolved, I don't know. Uh, I can see the argument for safe storage for the records, and for for digitalizing them, but where the originals are actually kept, I don't think that has been resolved yet.
1: Yeah, and one of the local First Nation chiefs up here, uh, Mike Labordet, had a great line to me yesterday where he said, hey, if they want copies of this thing, bring up a photocopier, have at it. Um, But Keith, maybe you can shed some light on, on the actual powers of this particular office because Registrar of Land Titles, Larry Blaschuk, who I talked to this week, basically said, well, council can, and very politely of course, basically said council can do what they like, but we have full authority and autonomy to make these decisions and, and follow through with them. Uh, does Doug, Doug Donaldson have any power here? Should he want to choose to exercise it, to, to press pause in this thing, or is this completely out of everybody's hands?
2: My understanding is a minister usually ha- always has some sort of power at the end of the day to intervene in, in well, uh, either through a ministerial order or, or order in council or if, if need be, an emergency piece of legislation. I don't think we're at that point yet. Uh, they do want to maintain the independence of this this office. It was privatized, but it's not like it's completely out of the hands of the crown. Uh, the crown still has a vested interest in this, so it's uh, it's an interesting debate now with First Nations, as you pointed off, off the top. That that provides a a level of, a, a new angle that cannot be dismissed out of hand. Uh, normally, I think the NDP thinks, oh, it's in Kamloops, you know, we have no vested interest in there, so we're not really interested in this issue. But once, as you, you're right, there's sort of changing change in tone in the House. Once First Nations interests are, are brought up, given the NDP's avowed commitment, and it's contained in Donaldson's letter, mandate letter from the Premier's office, uh, to uh, Indigenous reconciliation, uh, that, uh, that cannot be dismissed. So this is an interesting issue going forward. Uh, the safety issue of, of the records uh, cannot be dismissed in terms of main, uh, maintaining their security, but first nations uh, interest in this uh, cannot be dismissed either. So it's a, it's an unresolved issue for now, but, uh, I still think Donaldson has, uh, has some power at the end of the day to decide one way or another.
1: Yeah. Uh, we only got a few minutes left in the segment. want to shoehorn this topic in at the end here, but uh, speculation tax deadline is looming, uh, for this reverse or negative options marketing thing about registering, whether you are in fact, uh, Somebody who should be paying the tax or not. Uh, Vaughn, how's this whole thing shaping up?
3: Well, you've got an awful lot of people still haven't registered. Uh, They can still do it this weekend. Uh, They should, because if they don't get registered, the government's going to send them a tax notice, and then they'll have to go back over it. They they can still get out of it, but it won't be as easy as if they just register. Uh, And of course, the tax notices are huge. Uh, They could be in thousands of dollars and payable by July. So uh, the interesting thing, though, is uh, Finance Minister Carol James, who has defended this tax every step of the way, despite the many times it's been branded as half-baked, was defending it again this week and saying there will be no extension. So uh, register uh, and or else be prepared to be treated like a speculator and taxed accordingly.
1: And Keith, do you think we're going to see another round of people who uh, have sort of been ignoring or not paying attention to this thing, and then when the tax man cometh, suddenly they go, what the hell is going on, and everything hits the fan?
2: Yeah, a lot of a lot of people. Are, you know, it, you can look at this two ways. I mean, Carol James was just in my office at the the Global Studio office of the legislature doing a morning news hit and telling me, you know, the the compliance record is approaching ninety thousand, but that or ninety percent. That still means there's about at least a hundred thousand people out there who may miss the deadline. That's going to create, a, I think, a bureaucratic nightmare because those, according to James, only one percent of British colonies are going to pay this thing. What that I means is, you know, um, tens of thousands of people are going to be demanding refunds or or, uh, a second chance at this. It's going to be a bureaucratic nightmare. Uh, Some people are going to get caught inadvertently by this. I think at the end of the day, though, if you don't need to pay the tax, I think most people won't have to pay the tax, but they're going to have to jump through several bureaucratic hoops before their bank accounts are safe. So it's uh, it's still, I think, going to prove to be a, a messy house cleaning of job for for uh, James's uh, office. I mean, 90% is fine. Yeah. 10% miss is still a heck of a lot of people.
1: Yeah. I wonder if there'll be a slight extension there just to try and prevent uh, the you know what from hitting the fan. Uh, guys, let's take a quick break to the bottom of the hour here, and we'll get caught up in the news and we'll continue. Continue our conversation with Keith and Vaughn about the right to bear arms—the story that dominated the legislature yesterday. ICB seen a lot more.
0: Radio NL, radioNL.com, local news now for Camloops Computer Center. This is Inside Politics once again. Radio NL News Director Shane Woodford.
1: Good morning. We're talking to Vaughn Palmer and Keith Baldry, and holy smokes are we learning so much about our legislature these days, from the role of the speaker and the intricacies around that, to how staff spend and expense their money there, and now the dress code. Uh, so Keith, what happened yesterday? I mean, we had, it looked like somebody got a little carried away perhaps in the legislature, told uh, uh, told a female staffer to cover up, and then things just exploded from there.
2: It was quite extraordinary actually. I'd never seen anything like this before. So just to walk people through, if you've ever been to the legislature, the Speaker's Corridor is off-limits to the public. Uh, it's a long, narrow hallway outside the legislative chamber, which is basically where all the legislative business is done. If you ever watch television news and you see stuff from the legislature, what the cameras are shooting, or politicians and people walking around, that's the Speaker's Corridor. And there are rules there of, of about behavior, and there's also a dress code. It's usually enforced for men, and it's uh, the men have to wear jackets and ties and clothes collared shirts and no running shoes and no denim. Uh, it's never been an issue. Women's dress code has never really been defined, other than it's professional attire. Uh, but that's not really been defined for uh, in any great detail. So two days ago, a senior premier's office female staffer was in the hallway, and she was wearing uh, a blouse, a very expensive blouse, actually, very professional, but it had no sleeves. And I think what got attention here, she has a very large and very impressive tattoo on her shoulder, and that was visible and a guard uh, used the excuse you don't have sleeves, therefore ordered her out of the corridor. This is a very senior uh, person whose presence there is is required every day. She sort of assists with the media and monitors the media and communications between cabinet ministers. Well, I gather overnight the women of the press gallery and some staffers from the government, and I think even the opposition, either through phone calls and emails, got together and said, no, we're all going to show up uh... the next day and sure enough I walked in and I saw a whole bunch of women, my colleagues and government staffers all defiantly wearing tops that had no sleeves, daring the guards to kick them out. And it exploded into a a big issue when Shannon Waters, who's a journalist with a VC Today, an online publication, tweeted a picture of her and uh, the premier's office staffer and some press gallery colleagues, female colleagues, defiantly showing their bare arms in the legislature. That went semi-viral politicians were reacting and uh, women politicians in the legislature joined them in in demanding a change to the dress code. There's now a formal review being conducted by the clerk, but boy, oh boy, did that get a lot of attention yesterday. Nobody could talk about anything else in that place except that the guards uh, in the hallway were furious. I think they felt they were sort of thrown under the bus by the dress code, but I think the other counterpart is perhaps there was an overreaction by one of the guards who invoked a very rarely used dress code to get rid of someone who, because he probably objected to her tattoo.
1: Unbelievable. Uh, So do we need, uh, Vaughn, do we need a a definition of what business attire is for women there, or how do we put this whole thing to bed?
3: Well, there is a defined dress code for men, and the other thing is Shane, it hasn't really changed in 100 years. When you go up into the press gallery, there's pictures of former press galleries. And other than the fact that male reporters today don't tend to wear fedoras, uh, it's pretty much been the same. You know, it's a jacket and a tie. So it's clear for us, and everybody knows what it is, but... it isn't defined for women. Yes, professional business attire, but beyond that there's nothing, and as you will know in the wake of this this week uh, people have tweeted pictures out there of, for instance Canada's Foreign Affairs Minister in Parliament in exactly the same kind of sleeves as they called the Queen Chamber, right? Uh, Queen Elizabeth with bare shoulders opening Parliament in the UK back in the 1950s, so there isn't a clear dress code for women, and Quibbling on it or calling someone or humiliating them and sending them back to their office is not the way to proceed. If we're going to have a dress code for women, it needs to be defined as clearly as the one is for men. I don't think they're going to be prepared to do that, and I think it's totally unfair. To the women who work in the buildings uh, that they be held to a standard that is not even written
1: down one other aspect of this that that caught my eye was and it's sort of twofold Uh, one was the reaction from speaker Darrell plekis who seemed to double down on that raising uh, further raising the ire of women uh the other one was rob shaw who tweeted out uh response and and called it out for being fairly dumb uh, and then uh, Rob took to Twitter later on to say that uh, Mr. Mullen, the Speaker's chief of staff, um, kind of attacked him in the parking lot and said, listen, you're not a real journalist, you don't do real journalism, and you're just out to get the Speaker, which I thought was a crossing of the line. Keith?
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, Alan Mullen is a controversial figure, to say the least, in the in the legislature. But it's all part of the strange atmosphere that has taken hold in the B.C. legislature under Darrell Plekis, the speaker's watch. The legislature, the corridor guards are more... I want to say aggressive, but there's certainly more in your face about stuff in the in the legislature. Alan Mullen is conducting his own investigation of things he says, and he says he 's talking to the police all the time uh, so you 've got some nerves I think on edge in that place. Uh, people have sort of um, stuck their neck out to various degrees, notably Plekus and Mullen, and they're they're not necessarily getting their way, and then this thing on the dress code explodes in the speaker's face. He has no support in terms of insisting women cannot wear bare sleeves. Uh, You've got Carol James, the finance minister. Uh, Word went out to the press carry. Carol James will be talking to you about this. And when we get word that Carol James, who's uh, basically the most respected person in the House, will be dealing with this, we know exactly where the government's Sits on this. And she made it very clear to reporters she regards this as completely ridiculous and basically was a, 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 a sort of a, a drawing a line in the sand herself that this is not to be tolerated. So it'll be interesting on Monday, Shane, when everybody comes back, it's a day off today, if women defy the, the code again on Monday and what happens to them. And it's not just, we're not talking about Press Gallery reporters here. Bowen Ma, NDP MLA, defiantly showed up and marched up to cameras and said, I'm here with bare their, their arms. And I'm prepared to go in there and Mm. see what the guards do to me. And it's other MLAs as well. Sonia, first of the Green Party had this ridiculous story about one of her female staffers was kicked out of the hallway and told to go put a slip on under her dress because she was showing too much leg, which is just... You know, something you'd expect from under Disraeli and Gladstone, not under the current uh, uh, modern times. So it's an intolerable situation, but uh, the Speaker hasn't handled this well, but he's got another crack at it because the clerk's conducting the interview, and I hope she conducts it quickly.
1: Uh, I want to hear from you, this uh, on you as well, Vaughn. uh, Is Mr. Mullen, uh, does he need to pull his head in over this, or how he handled Mr. Shaw yesterday?
3: No, you know, yes, but look, uh, he operates with the full authority of the Speaker, and the Speaker's made no secret of the fact that he does regard uh, many members of the Press Gallery as being particularly professional either. So, uh, you know, that, that's their view. Uh, we'll see how this sorts out. Uh, Keith and I have been here through many a speaker. Uh, many a chief of staff, uh, many a premier and cabinet minister, and neither of us is planning to go anywhere. Shaw is just starting out his career. I suspect he will be here long after Darrell Plekis has returned uh, to his riding. So, uh, you know, uh, that's uh, that's just the way it is around here. You, you, you expect to be at the center of controversy when you report on B.C. politics. Um, and, you know, I don't think it's a particularly good way for the speaker to be conducting himself and I certainly don't think it's a good way for the Speaker's Chief of Staff to conduct himself, but it is their established p- pattern of behaviour, and we'll see where all this goes.
1: Uh, really quickly, we only got a couple minutes left, but I do want to jam this in. Uh, on Monday, April 1st, we're going to see a lot of ICBC news, uh, rate hike 6.3%. We're going to see the caps on pain and suffering, uh, and we're also going to get a volley back from lawyers who I understand are, are getting ready to, uh, to take the government on in all of this. Keith?
2: No, the ICBC season is about to begin. Yeah, your your insurance rates go up. Uh, The whole different way of uh, settling accident claims is going to kick in, all designed to to curb costs. But the big one, Shane, really takes place in September. That's when the rate structure is going to be flipped on its head. And a lot of people uh, will be paying less, but a lot of people are going to be paying more, in fact, significantly more, because the definition of what is a good driver, will be determined by ICBC, and it may not fit what a lot of people think, consider themselves to be a lot of people think i'm good i'm a good driver I only had one accident in twenty years well that may actually kick you down a notch to not such a good driver in icbc's eyes and your insurance rates will likely go up so the first uh, kick at the cat takes place monday uh, but get ready for big changes in the fall as well.
1: Yeah, and uh, final word to you, Vaughn. The, the key, of course, in all this is ICBC is in uh, financial dire straits, and all of these moves are being made to try and turn the fiscal ship around. Uh, this first wave is expected to save about a billion dollars, but we'll see. Uh, we'll see, yeah.
3: <laughs> we'll see. Uh, look, uh, EB has also, in effect, declared war on the uh, the bar, uh, the, the legal profession, uh, and the courts in this because he's taken. Uh, taken a number of steps, including rewriting the court rules and trying to cap legal expenses and so forth, and use of experts, a whole bunch of other things, forcing uh, claims into arbitration. If if it works, it's supposed to save a billion dollars, but I think it's an open question whether or not the legal profession, the arbitrations, and the court system will cooperate to the degree EB thinks they will, uh, I would wait and see where the finances stand about this time next year to see if he's saved the billion dollars he claims he's going to save. And I agree with Cur- Keith, people who renew their insurance after the 1st of September are in for a big surprise, many of them, because I think they will be looking at a significant jump in rates above and beyond the 6% increase that takes effect on Monday.
1: Yeah, and as I said, lawyers are going to uh, fire a volley back on Monday as well, and they have a very interesting person taking point on that, and he'll be a guest on the Woodford Show Monday morning. Keith Vaughn, appreciate it. as always great show. We look forward to chatting again soon. All right, Bye-bye. There we go. That's Vaughn Palmer with the Vancouver Sun, Keith Baldry with Global BC. And we'll take a quick break on the inside politics. And on the other side, we'll uh, focus back on ride sharing. Green Party MLA Adam Olson joins us.
0: Local News Now, Radio NL, 610 a.m. and RadioNL.com. You're listening to Inside Politics with Shane Woodford for Kamloops Computer Center on Radio NL.
1: Good morning, welcome back. We're hoping to talk ride-sharing, just uh, waiting on... Uh, MLA, uh, Green Party MLA, Adam Olson to join us. We're just uh, behind the scenes trying to get a hold of him here. Hopefully the phone will ring in half a second. Uh, But this week, of course, uh, the all-party legislative uh, committee studying ride-sharing tabled a number of recommendations uh, to tackle what will be or what hopefully will be the introduction of ride-sharing in this province uh, by the fall of this year. That's a promise that has sort of twice been punted down the road by the government of the day, the NDP, who campaigned back in the last provincial election on bringing ride-sharing in in the fall of 2017. That, of course, uh, well, didn't really happen. Uh, They punted it to 2018 and uh, now we're looking at 2019. So the Legislative Committee tabling 11 recommendations to try and get us there. And Green Party MLA Adam Olson is on the phone now. Good morning, Adam. How are you? Morning, Shane. I'm very well, thank you. Good, man. Thanks for joining us. Really appreciate that. Okay, let's jump into the thick of this, Adam. Uh, You guys have toiled away uh, in an all-party legislative committee for months. You've uh, gone through the ringer on this thing. You've talked to experts. You've uh, thoughtfully considered recommendations. You guys have put your head together, uh, working on on the same page to get this thing done. You table 11 recommendations. Uh, You sit back and barely an hour after these things hit the table, uh, Transportation Minister Claire Trevena comes out and says, well, one of them just isn't going to pass the muster. Uh, I'm rejecting the recommendation for a Class 5 license out of hand. First off, um, does it pass the smell test for you that it took her all of maybe 50 minutes to to say no thanks to that?
4: It, it, it's not lost on me that um, the government went into this process, or at least the minister went into this process uh, at the beginning of Bill 55 with this, um, uh, with this position that Class 4 uh, means in more safety than Class 5. And, and uh, that was part of the debate at Bill 55 back in the fall we went to into a committee with the hopes and and i went into the committee with the feeling that if we were able to go through the process of listening to witnesses having the debate having the discussion and then you know on balance uh, which you know a majority of mlas recommend class 5 based on what we heard that the minister was going to duly consider that so when you say does it pass the smell test i wouldn't use those words i would i would just say that i'm I'm simply disappointed that more consideration wasn't given to the thoughtfulness of the discussion and the debate that we had. Now, there wasn't absolute agreement on that recommendation, that's for sure. But there wasn't absolute agreement. There's definitely not absolute agreement uh, in the uh, discourse, the public discourse about this. Uh, and there's some, there's some real troubling uh, assumptions that are made that class four is inherently, needs inherently more uh, safety um, than class five. And safety is a much broader uh, discussion than, than any class of license, and, and especially one that's based off of national safety standards. It's it's about the outcomes that we're trying to achieve, not just clinging or cleaving to uh, a, a national safety code or uh, sets of licensing that we have.
1: Well, let me put this to you then, because you're right. theres There's been a backlash, at least on social media, say, with this sort of argument about, oh, well, I feel much safer with a Class 4 license. That, that's a good safety requirement. Uh, in fact, the minister herself has kind of hung her argument on safety. You guys spent a lot of work in the trenches to determine this. So straight question to you. Uh, did the committee find any discernible safety difference between a Class 4 and a Class 5 license? No. Well, and as, and
4: as I think in question period uh, a couple of days back, uh, your MLA from uh, Kamloops North Thompson uh, clearly articulated that even the, the stats, the, n- the numbers that it brought to us from ICBC don't don't show that or, or prove that out. And, and and I enjoyed working with.
1: Have we lost Adam Wilson? Hang on, bear with us for half a second. Where oh. it looks like, oh, oh, there. Are you there, Adam?
4: Sorry, another another call started to come in no. on my phone here.
1: Yeah, yeah. No worries. You, uh, we lost you right around uh, talking about uh, working with Peter Millibar there.
4: Yeah, well, and, you know, his question at question period highlighted that even the numbers don't don't necessarily uh, to show vast uh, differences between uh, class four and class uh, five uh, safety. I think that there are aspects of class four that we can that can be added to a class five uh, without having to force people to go through uh, the extra testing to without forcing them to you know go through the medical processes that are required, and we know how hard it is to get. Uh, family doctors, we can we can make sure that people only drive uh, ride-hailing uh, with a perfect driving record. We can make sure that uh, only people over a certain age can drive uh, uh, for ride-hailing companies. So there are things that we can do in addition to Class 5 that uh, meet uh, or even exceed, actually, the safety standards. I'll give you an example, Shane. I was walking through Victoria yesterday at lunch because I wanted to get some sunshine and and some fresh air. And I witnessed, and you'll know the geography, but I witnessed a cab uh, crossing a double yellow line on a left hand across Government Street to pull into the Empress Hotel. Cars were jammed up behind him, having to go around him. Uh, He made it halfway across before having to stop to let someone walk on the sidewalk, Mm. now jamming up the other side. So there is this perception that class four, and I think there's some danger in what the minister has done here too that's saying that the only way that we can achieve safety standards is through Class 4, and yet we see evidence of Class 4 not providing the level of safety that perhaps is being put out there. So if we're actually talking about safety, then let's talk about it in the broad terms, people being left on the side of the road, people not getting rides because cab drivers don't want to go where the people want to go. Let's talk about drinking and driving incidences that could be taken uh, off the street because people have access to a ride when now they don't. So let's broaden the conversation out and actually have a discussion about safety. That's what uh, we're doing. If yeah. you
1: don't, then it's a red herring. Uh, I want to jam two more questions in here, and I know we're running out of time, but uh, let's get to them. One that really bothers me is that uh, the taxi industry, the taxi lobby, seems to have had a chokehold on the governments of the day for quite some time. That goes for both the NDP and the previous government, the B.C. Liberals. It's been seven years in counting on ride-sharing. Um, at what point, Adam, or what do we have to do to break the dam where public opinion, which is clearly on, let's let's put some competition on the street, let's deal with this archaic model that's not servicing our needs, uh, how does the dam break on the political will to get this done instead of just screwing around and delaying ride-sharing?
4: Part of it's been done. Part of it was around uh, donations and relationships with, uh, with um, uh, industry groups and relationships with advocacy groups. Uh, part of it could be done with uh, for proportional representation where you're not uh, work, you know, you're basically not pandering to blocks of votes uh, in order to get to the certain number of seats that you need. So there's some political aspects of it. But I think that the big piece of this is the donations and the advocacy groups. Uh, that's going to take a little bit of a while to work its way out of the system. There's still longstanding relationships. But I think that uh, the, the uh, getting big money out of politics was a, was a really important step in this province.
1: Okay, uh, almost out of time, but real quick question to you. You guys have done the hard work, you've tabled the recommendations. We have seen uh, the issue of ride sharing be punted to the next year, to the next year, to the next year. Now it's supposed to come in the fall of 2019. Straight to you, do you think that ride hailing will arrive, Uber, Lyft, everybody else will arrive in this uh, province this fall as promised or not?
4: Uh, I wish that I could answer that question directly. I can tell you that my colleagues have been working on this for a long time. There's been a lot of promises. Uh, I'll just say to, uh, to all British Columbians that I'm going to continue to work to make sure that the government follows through on that promise, And but I'm not going to get involved in making uh, promises that I have no control over. So uh, I can't commit to that. Uh, the, that's what the minister saying is going to happen. Let's continue to work and lean in on this one and make sure that it does.
1: You're going to make a great politician, Adam. One day. (laughs) (laughs) All right, man. Uh, Thanks for the insight. Really appreciate taking the time this morning. Take care, brother. Take care. All right. That's Adam Olson, uh, Green Party MLA, who was also on the All-Party Ride-Sharing Committee uh, discussing his uh, thoughts on, on the 11 recommendations that committee tabled and where he thinks uh, things should go and where uh, he thinks they went awry as well. And that's it for this week's edition of Inside Politics. Really appreciate you listening along. My thanks to my guest today. We'll see you again right here on Radio NL next Friday.
0: 1230 Merritt, 1340 Ashcroft, Cash Creek, from CHNL in Kamloops, a Stingray radio station. This is Radio NL 610 AM. Local news now.